of iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science The Pause platform. I'm your host Sabrina Brando and this month, June 2021, is all about the physical environment of animals on the Pause platform. So today I am delighted to welcome Dr. James Carl Fisher, who is the founder of the Zoological Lightning Institute in the USA. Welcome James. Thank you very much. I uh, really appreciate that. Thank you, Sandra. Yes, very much looking Supreme. forward to hearing a lot about, you know, light, because that's really a topic that is, I think it's understudied, it's under talked about, if that's even an English way of saying it, I guess, maybe I'm just making up the words as I go along, but it's really a topic that, you know, I'm, I'm really delighted that, um, you know, there's an institute dedicated to this topic in relationship to a variety of different um, domains and animal welfare is one of them, conservation, but we're gonna hear a lot from you about it. And perhaps we could start, it's always nice to get a story on how you know you got started in the field or maybe you did something different before this. So it would be lovely to hear <laughs> how, how this all started. Oh, I, I appreciate that, Sabrina. It, it is a big part of the you know, of, of the, the position we're in now, you know, the story. Um, I actually, uh, uh, I'm an architect, right? But before I got into architecture, I studied physics. And when I first approached light in architectural studies, I was very confused uh, because the terminology had nothing to do with the physics that I knew. Uh, it was very much uh, a rule of thumb convenient tool you know, things like lux and foot candles and whatnot. That's kind of the backstory. Um, when I became uh, an architect, I was working with zoos and aquariums. And uh, in one back of house uh, 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 survey, I happened to speak with an animal keeper who was looking at uh, his seahorses. And he wanted to know how uh, a seahorse would change its color due to the lighting he was using, right? And but he was measuring with a, a foot candle meter uh, and he was well-intentioned, but there was no way to know what was happening biologically in, in the kind of study he was doing uh, from a physical standpoint. Now, I wasn't a biologist, but I, I did have that background in physics. And, and I knew that if you don't use physical terms, you can't understand physical things. So uh, my response, we, we always try to be positive. Uh, you know, we're very much about positivity with uh, uh, ZLI, the Zoological Lighting Institute. So um, uh, my response was to form a charity uh, and to provide scholarship money and grant money to animal keepers who were interested in light and lighting uh, in a serious way. Because I, I didn't see anybody doing that kind of work, um, but it seemed a, a, a huge need. Um, and so anyway, the Zoological Lighting Institute formed that way around the basis of this research, but it was also tied into animal enrichment and care at the time. Uh, the spider enrichment, you know, form that Disney was promoting was up and running at that time. And uh, so I was very involved with it, very, very, very enthralled with that, you know, as, as a good metric to move us forward. Um, so originally the charity formed around this idea of improving science to improve animal welfare. Uh, and so it was kind of that combination of science and animal welfare. Um, because I wasn't a specialist in the group, or neither were my colleagues at the time who formed the group, um, we gathered photobiological papers and studies, trying to understand what, what, what it was we were getting ourselves into. Uh, and there we realized that light was central to so many disparate aspects of uh, animal life that we really had to engage it in an organized way uh, and it was really much broader than animal welfare in a zoo or aquarium it was really about conservation because if you modify the lighting environment you're introducing changes that you, you may may or may not know what they're going to be so uh, to help us along 
we created the ZLI framework or ZLI framework. I, I was in the UK going back and forth uh, to the US. Um, so we call it ZLI or ZLI, depending on where we're at. Um, but with, with that in mind, though, we organized photobiology into uh, a framework, three categories. We looked at the physiology, uh, so photophysiology, you know, uh, we looked at sensory ecology as a second broad category, uh, taking into account like visual ecology or animal coloration or cross-sensory modalities, things like that. And then finally, we looked at integrative biology, you know, looking at uh, how lighting or light would affect ecosystems as a whole. And, and this could be about seasonality or migration. Um, it could be about epidemiology, uh, you know, how how disease would rise uh, due to changes in, in, in light and lighting. Um, or it could be about uh, community resourcing, uh, you know, which animals were affected and how that would affect, uh, affect the food chains going up and down. So that was the first thing we did. Uh, and it was really helpful. Now, in part, we did that because we wanted to be very broad and comprehensive in how we provided money. Uh, we wanted to gather money, but we wanted to give it uh, to a, a very broad uh, scope of photobiological work. Um, because the more we looked into it, the more important light was to so many different areas uh, of an animal life. And the existing metrics were off. Uh, they tended to be on a very industrial basis, you know, uh, light in the architectural world, you know, where, where I also came out of, would look at lighting as facilitating tasks. So, you know, I need so much light to, to write on my desk or so much light at a loading dock, you know, those kind of questions. But physically, the physical world doesn't care about tasks. You know, those physical relationships, it's almost more like temperature. You know, there's a range within which that life exists. Uh, and if the range is off a little bit, then the life has to adjust as best it can or it disappears. So it's a very different way of thinking about light than you would get, say, from a lighting manufacturer. And it's nothing against them. It's just it comes out of that mentality. It's an industrial mentality of how do I improve task and productivity by adding something to the equation. Whereas on the biological sense, we're really talking about what's the appropriate habitat for an animal. Uh, and so after we did that first organization of the sciences, uh, which we, we found really helpful because again, things were a mess. You know, you can find, uh, you can find lighting studies in thousands of wonderful universities, right? But they were scattered and they were all looking at different things. They, they weren't looking at the same subject. So the framework helped us with it. Anyway, after we did that, the next step was to say, well, what is an appropriate lighting metric, a light metric? Not artificial lighting, but what's a lighting metric that we want to look at? And there, uh, really, there's, you know, it's photon density counts over time. So the relationship of these photon density counts. At first, we looked at using a spectroradiometer you know, being able to tell things like frequency and intensity or distribution. And this, I think, uh, many, many people are familiar with, you know, that the, within a given uh, pulse of electromagnetic radiation, right, there are going to be different frequencies of light, you know, of energy, right? So, um, so we, we first started with that, but then uh, we also looked at the shape of light. So where is the light coming from in an environment? And Dan Nielsen on our uh, board, uh, Danny E. Nielsen on, uh, on our board, he actually, in, in parallel to that, but in a much more sophisticated way, uh, has a, uh, a field measurement protocol that he uses. It was just published a little while back. So there, the idea is you look at where the light is coming from, above, below, on the horizon, the relative... Uh, uh, intensity, you know, relationships. Light's all about relationships, physically speaking. So with that, uh, we, we formalize this into something that we're calling the Zala metric. It's a zoo and aquarium lighting assessment tool. But um, taking both that framework, the original framework of the sciences, and a physical way of measuring light, um, what we've done most recently is create this Zala metric uh, the idea being that you have to measure light. You can't just see it. You have to measure it 
to know what's going on. And, and, and so that, that's really where we're at right now. And, you know, our, our goal is to create animal welfare monitoring stations uh, at zoos, aquariums, but also in other types of places like uh, research facilities, wherever there are animals, uh, agriculture, uh, coastlines, particularly important municipalities. The, the idea is really to look at light and its relationship across those that framework uh, and to understand what the impacts are with a given uh, animal uh, or and then species and class and and uh, as an architect then the final thing I would say on this point you know as an architect in this realm um, my goal is actually to change architectural sustainability because it's never really looked at wildlife uh, it, it looks at ecosystems marginally but it really emerged as a resource conservation initiative, you know, ways to be more efficient and to save cash, but not really to get into the living systems. You know, that, that's, a, that's a gross generalization, but, uh, but it, it actually speaks to kind of the history of it. And there've always been great people like Ken Yang on our board is like amazing, amazing, amazing. So, you know, it, that there are always, um, uh, there's a transition that needs to happen away from thinking of, I shouldn't say away from, in addition to thinking of, let's say, climate change mitigation, right, uh, which is absolutely necessary. Um, it's important to think of how wildlife itself and animals specifically function in uh, or through any architectural development, because there's no point in climate change mitigation unless you pay attention to animals. And, and that's a hard that's a hard statement for a lot of people to accept because it was so hard to get people to pay attention to climate change mitigation. But without looking at ecosystems and and the way we always distinguish between animal welfare and wildlife conservation, animal welfare is about the animal, you know, or that you think, you know, right? That's the way we approach it. So there's a relationship set up between an individual, a conversation with the animal, you know could be a pet could be could be wildlife you know um, zoo pets are a great example of that but then there's wildlife conservation and that's about saving the animals you don't but that somehow provide ecological services uh, or have a relationship to your life that you don't know but you also have to pay attention to so when we look at light and light pollution and you know it, all of that sort of thing we're really looking at at both of those so the final statement there. Uh, sorry, I like to talk, you know, when, when it's in my, my COVID hovel here. Um, the final statement I want to say is like our mission actually kind of summarizes what we do, um, which it should. But it says supporting the sciences of light and life through the arts. Uh, and there's a reason for that, why we do through the arts for animal welfare and wildlife conservation. So there, there's this flow back and forth between the animal you know, the animal you don't. Um, but the way we would address doing good works, because we are a charity registered in the US and, and we have to have social purpose. So, but the purpose is really to address animal welfare, wildlife conservation through supporting the sciences uh, with the arts as our lens. Uh, as much as we're into the physics of light, it really has to, the questioning that we have to pursue has to be critical and the arts allow us to do that uh, from any culture. So it's, it's the, that's why that's all there. Sorry, a little long, but I hope that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's so many things there. And of course, you know, as I mentioned, light is not my expertise and physics isn't yeah. either. And so, you know, it's just so interesting to hear all that um you know also in you talked about you know light is all and I, I love that kind of when people are so embedded so you know soaked into their topics it's like yeah light is all about relationships and I'm like is is that true okay I don't I didn't know that right? and so I would love to hear more about you know your when we say so because I've written down a few different things here but can you talk to us a little bit about the relationships you know what what do you mean when you say light is all about relationships uh, completely physical at this point i have another way we can work through the five domains uh and uh one of our our projects is actually to take light out of that little niche in environment 
and to show how it's important from mental functioning backwards through nutrition and everything else. But when I say that light is about relationships, um, light is electromagnetic radiation. It's nothing else. There's no mysticism about light in the way we approach it. And, and that can be hard sometimes for, for people because there's a mystical tradition around light that comes out of Christian theology, you know, quite frankly. That's very difficult to reconcile with a proper physical view. Um, and by proper, I just mean physical. I don't mean like correct or, you know, like, or correcting the other. Um, but with, uh, with light being about relationships, because it's a field and because the way the perceptual systems will process light, both the uh, distribution of light and how it comes in. So if I look at, say, think of it this way. If I'm walking down uh, 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 a road at night, a country road, I was actually in Scotland a couple of years ago and I've got a very nice photo of this. Um, I was walking down a country road and I, I could see beautifully. There were, I could see the Milky Way. Uh, it was late at night, I was tired, I was wandering around, you know. Um, I could see the Milky Way, I could see the farmhouses. There was a little, a little bit of like cloud on the horizon, so there was enough light reflected that I could make out um, uh, trees and I could make out the uh, the snow on the hills, and then a car came, and like everybody's had this experience. If you're walking in the dark and a car comes with those headlights, you cannot see, and then after that car passes, it takes about twenty minutes for an old guy like me, or maybe you know fifteen if you're a little younger. But it takes some time to readjust where you can see again. And the scene doesn't necessarily have to be images. Like here I mentioned images, but it might even be that little flash on the side of your eye, right? That allows you to, to respond to something. So if, uh, say, I'll, I'll make a hypothetical, uh, if a bat, if, if a bat flies out of a tree when I'm walking down that country road, I won't be able to image the bat, right? But I'll see it and I'll jump five feet, you know, out of being startled. So anyway, that idea about relationships, there's two relationships in what I just said. There, there's the, the visual field where it's, you know, generally eyes will adjust to the brightest uh, object in the field of view, making everything else look dark, right? So there, there's that kind of a distribution. Uh, there's the temporal distribution. Actually, there's three, sorry. There's the temporal distribution where, you know, car comes, I could see, now I can't and later I can, right? So there's that. Uh, and, and there is a natural flow, obviously, of, you know, twilight to midnight to, to dawn to sunlight, you know, there's a natural flow to what we would normally experience, right? Uh, if we did, weren't adding artificial, if we weren't adding uh, radiation into the environment, we'd be able to, you know, have that. Um, but then finally, so that's two, right? You know, the, those, those are two different ways. The third way is in myself. So, in that moment, you know, first I talked about being able to see like the landscape, right? Being able to, you know, somehow make it out because my eyes were adjusted. I could still image at those low levels. But then we've got that, that bat, right? And that uh, uh, capacity that I have to respond to that animal or, you know, uh, whatever it might be, it could be just a, you know, floating, uh, you know, blowing reeds in the wind. But the capacity uh, to respond to that is something that is a relationship in myself, my physical self, that has been conditioned by the environment around me. So when I say relationships, it's really those three to start. And I'm sure I could go through that framework and we could pick out other things. But I think, you know, for when we're thinking about animal welfare in a zoo or aquarium, those are the three I would point out, you know, that you'd want to look at. So uh, does that help uh, in terms of relationships? Yeah, no, I think it's really, really great to, you know, get more of the background and more mm. of the terminology, like, you know, I often say animal welfare is a language that we have to learn mm. to speak. And so I'm sure, yeah. of course, we know is physics or even, you know, the language of light, what sorts of um, terminology. So that's very helpful. And I really liked how you mentioned um, also the shape of light, you know, obviously, um, thinking about light as, um, 
you know, obviously what it makes the environment look like or what are some of the aspects that you have to think about with regards to shade and, you know, but, but when you talk about the, the shape of light um, mm. and you mentioned the back of house and the front of house, could you talk a little bit to that and maybe some practical examples in relationship to animal care or welfare? I, I can, I can. Um, well, one way to think about it, uh, under, if I were in the desert, right, and uh, I were to, to measure the difference between light coming from above to the light at the horizon, to the light coming off the, um, the, the pavement, the surface, the sand, whatever it might be, um, there's a, a, a specific pattern to that. Uh, and so it, in, in that case, the horizon would uh, probably be the darkest, um, the, the darkest area. So I think that's, let's be a little more specific with the giraffe, right? If, if there's a giraffe, say, on the savanna, right, the sky will be brightest, the horizon would be darkest, and then down below, you would have a bright reflection up, right? And their eyes are actually, uh, uh, they evolved in that condition to be fit. Now, if you put giraffes in a barn, right? All of a sudden, the shape of light is vastly different. So instead of having bright sky, uh, less bright horizon, and bright surface below, um, you will always, uh, and, I, and I say always, I mean, I can imagine like some device to help around this, but it, generally speaking, uh, you will have uh, a dark sky, a bright window strip, Right? For the architects out there, think of Boussier, right? A bright window strip and then uh, a dark surface on the floor, right? And so what that does, it takes the normal habitat and inverts it. Uh, and that in and of itself, we may say, oh, well, it's a big deal, right? But it changes the perceptual capacity of the animal. And we haven't even gotten to things like uh, what the animal can see in those cases. So uh, again, that general idea that at the most basic level, that structure is just those three, you know, three divisions, sky, horizon, surface, right? But there's also the permeability of vision uh, and, you know, what indicates. So if an animal, for example, is very capable of seeing motion, right? And you have layers of, of, of screens, you may actually be inducing a very intense situation you know, where there's a lot of motion all of a sudden that would increase stress that would reduce the fitness of the animal, both for its own in an ethical sense, but also in terms of its viability as an animal you would want to display as a, so as a resource, right? There's kind of a double uh, whammy there. Um, that's one way. Um, another way might be, I mean, if uh, you recall uh, in London Zoo, and one of my uh, uh, friends, uh, Kimi Ohanda, is a beautiful artist, uh, a beautiful, he's a nice guy, but he, he, but he paints these beautiful paintings, right, uh, and uh, beautiful artwork. But I remember a conversation I had with him about 20 years ago now, where we were talking about Victorian painting on the walls of exhibits, you know, that, you know, why is that, is that just scenography, right? So if I was looking back to Hagenbeck, I'd say, oh, you know, that's just, that's just theater, we don't need that. But actually, it's modifying the light, right? And so you can start to think about, now, an animal is not going to have the same artistic lexicon that a human is going. A non-human animal is not going to have the same as a human animal is, right? But that being said, there's a variation in the pattern of the light that changes the structure and the shape of the light in that facility, right? So um, there's lots of things to consider in terms of practicality of it. Another way to think, but this all depends on the individuality of the species. You know, we made a film on fireflies a few years ago. And, you know, fireflies, like the uh, the males, will, will fly, uh, you know, a couple of, couple of meters off the, uh, off the ground looking for mates, right? And the females will stick their tails in the air and they'll flash. The male's eyes are actually focused down, right? Meaning that what's above doesn't matter except how it's illuminating below. Right. And there it's very important, you know, that that flash would be visible. 
but it's dependent on the structure of the eye of that animal and how it's processed and you know and all the other things but but it, it depends on the animal so when we talk about the structure of light there's the structure of how the electromagnetic radiation is coming into a particular facility whether it's behind the house it, it doesn't matter to the animal if it's on stage or not outside of the stress that it's facing right so you know but but the, the key of that though is how the light comes into that space uh, and, 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 and how it's structured and how the animal itself is structured so that it responds in certain ways over time. Those are both really important, I think. So. Yes, I think I really love that. I mean, one of the things, of course, the Practical Animal Welfare Science Platform is all about bringing together people that have vastly different exper expertise and backgrounds that, you know, and, and I just love this. You know, I, I already look forward to having you for a webinar and, and geeking out on anything <laughs> light. Because, oh, anytime. Yeah. Anytime. I, I, uh, it's yeah. So fascinating also like how the light comes in. I mean, obviously caring for animals, I've cared for animals for 15 years and you you are aware of light and some of, you know, my background is with marine mammals. So when we were writing scientific mm -hmm. papers, we were, you know, looking at people who obviously scientists and, and, and others who are looking at their eyes and problems with eyes and their recommendations on the colors of the pool and light. Uh, fragmentation and the appropriate shading and even you know specific for marine mammals that you would look as to where you know the sun was and so on when you would be feeding the animals so the animals wouldn't be like looking straight into the sun as you were you know maybe trying to feed them or throw food so you're thinking about light to a certain extent but you don't, I think, you know, at least I haven't spent the time uh, thinking about lighting the details that you just uh, mentioned. And you only mentioned a few because, and I think it's important, uh, you, you mentioned a documentary. And so the Zoo Lightning uh, Institute has four different departments. And I have written them down here. Of course, the photo sciences you spoke about, education, sustainable design, and film and media. So, uh, and of course, today we're going to talk mainly oh, yeah, about yeah, animal welfare and others, but we'll definitely make a, a link available for anybody. Check out this, the charity and, you know, all the wonderful work that you're doing in these different domains. And perhaps related to welfare and care of animals, going back to you, your uh, um, assessment that you mentioned earlier, perhaps you can talk a little bit about you know, when we're doing light assessments in zoos and aquariums, then what are some of the things uh, that you're looking at? Or how, and how do you do that? Uh, I, I, absolutely. Well, one, the, the zolometric, it's, it's a relatively continuous uh, prospect. One of the reasons that I don't work as an architect much anymore, a little bit, but not much, right? Uh, is that the commissioning is all important for animal welfare. I mean, enrichment, the idea of enrichment is that, you know, it came out of daycare, actually, originally, that, you know, the space wasn't adequate. You had to do something to fix it, right? Um, monitoring is the key uh, with, with, with light. Um, as an architect, I always used to spec a spectroradiometer first, you know, in the schedule and say, look, you know, buy that first before you buy any light fixture. There, there is no perfect lighting. I'm going to say that right away, and I'm, I'm very happy for that to circulate, though it doesn't make me any friends. Um, it, there is no perfect lighting. Uh, you know, there's lighting that you might use to supplement something that's inadequate, but there isn't, uh, you know, what you would call like an animal-friendly lighting. It, it just doesn't exist. Uh, and, and I say that very harshly, right? You know, um, with, with all due respect to friends in the lighting industry who are providing a good tool to supplement things that are, are wrong, right? Um, with the Zolometric, uh, we actually work it through the five domains of animal welfare. Uh, the five domains of animal welfare are incredibly important from this, uh, 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 an animal welfare perspective with regard to light. And just say that a couple times, right? Because that's one to get through. However, uh, we do it in reverse, right? So mental functioning typically is not measured. To, there's about, I'd say, six or seven different metrics that you can find on IATSA's website about how to do animal welfare monitoring. 
none of them get into monitoring animal uh, mental welfare because it's a hard concept and the idea is that you would just you know want something positive right um, but what we've done is a little different um, we've with mental functioning and I'm gonna go I'm gonna run through if it's all right with you I'm gonna run through each of the domains pretty quickly okay with mental uh, the mental domain um, one of the arguments we would have is that the natural diversity of light is crucial for the consciousness of the animal right consciousness for us is a matter of a perceptual system I know you know people will talk about brain and they will talk about you know spirit and all sorts of things but because we we, we focus on light right we look at mental functioning as a product uh, a fitness or, or in terms of fitness relationships to um, the natural diversity of light that means that midnight is as important as noon right um, so that's how that's where we start we might talk about unconscious aspects you know not, not to be too uh, Freudian about all of this but we may talk when we talk about unconscious elements they also provide a pressure on perception and consciousness um, but uh, it's really those two sides it's the, the the diversity of light in the environment so the Zala metric that comes out of this right is to actually measure that light uh, and while measuring continuously is possible you can automate it you know to do that um, both in terms of uh, you know if you have a, a camera a video camera with a fisheye lens you know you can tell when there are disruptions in the space um, but uh, setting up a spectroradiometer at intervals uh, you know automating it so it takes a reading every 15 minutes the reason you would want to do that um, is to actually understand what's going on with that uh, light perception condition what's conditioning the mental functioning what's conditioning the perception in terms of light uh, and uh, with light a brief exposure can throw off the whole system so just like remembering before that I that that uh, uh, example of a, a car headlight you know making it impossible for me to see tw for 20 minutes physiologically speaking I can destroy the melatonin production in any mammal by doing the same thing for no more than five minutes that the entire night's lost meaning that the hormone range sorry I always use my hands and I don't know but the the, the hormone range becomes very narrow right uh, along with the lighting range right because again not looking at light so much as a um, uh, an additive amount really looking at it as a range of conditions of orders of magnitude so uh, another you know common thing I would say in a lecture would be that um, you know of 11 orders of magnitude of radiation you know, light radiation in the environment uh, eight of those happen at night meaning that if you put a street light on you've lost eight and if you lose that you're losing the diversity of the habitat meaning you lose biodiversity uh, very simply but it also works in terms of an individual animal and their welfare under the mental domain measuring that light continuously allows you to do that uh, another thing that, uh, and and one way that we would read this into a welfare concern specifically is to say that um, uh, if we go along with the Cambridge Declaration of Consciousness right which which we should right you know as, as we go along with that we would also say well there's nothing stopping us from saying that consciousness isn't an either or proposition there are states of consciousness right it doesn't matter if I'm meditating uh, you know to achieve this state or that state or if I'm praying or what you know or, or I'm thinking I'm reading you know consciousness has always been discussed as if there are states when we talk about human animals right there's no reason not to suggest that that's not the case with non-human animals the 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 issue then comes to be well I can't say what that state is because I have no access to the unconscious of, of an animal right I can look at expressions and things but I have no access to that however I can say what the condition is guiding the perception and consciousness because of the light so the idea of measuring light in this mental domain and forgive me for this goes on a little bit but um, the 
the benefit of measuring light in an animal environment appropriately, again, by let, let's call it the, the, the qualities of light and the structure of light, the shape of light, right? The, and, and the means are a spectroradiometer and a camera, a video camera, right? Um, if I'm doing that, what I'm doing is providing a realm of opportunity for these different states of consciousness that are dependent on the perceptual modes of the individual animal. So that, that's, that's how that, that's mental. That's the first one. Uh, the second one, when we get into nutrition, uh, which, you know, typically I think it's, it's always the second, but we're coming at it from the other side here. If we get into nutrition, light affects nutrition in two general ways. If you look at an animal as an open system rather than a closed system, right? And that's very important. This comes out of biophysics, actually. Uh, Fritz Popp is the fanta fantastic author. He passed away two years ago, I think. But absolutely fantastic author, Fritz Popp, a biophysicist who looked at electromagnetic fields as electromagnetic fields in the body. So uh, that, that's his start. He always said, we are beings of light, which is one of the reasons I idolize this guy. Um, but... If you think of uh, an organism, any living organism, as an open system that processes other living organisms, right? that means that you have two, two important relationships with light. There is the, 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 the processing of food in an opportunistic way, right? So my eyes or uh, an eagle's eyes or a, a fish eye, right, you know, is there to spot and acquire food. Right, that that's how eyes evolved in the Precambrian era. Right, you know, to as, as a predation. Right, so the eyes they, they help you do that. They help you process it, uh, and then when you eliminate the food, it, it the eyes are actually useful in organizing that too. It's why cats bury their poo. Right, you know, it takes it out of sight, which is interesting because it gives another layer to all of the the the, the unconscious side of things. But um, but anyway, uh, the point though being that the eyes are actually remarkable in that they're not simply act tools of acquisition. They're also, uh, they're also used to govern hormones in uh, mammalian bodies and other species as well. Birds will actually separate it from the eye to the, uh, to the top of the head. Um, but in, in mammals, we, like humans, I'll start with humans. With humans, we have um, light sensitive uh, ganglion cells, right? And everyone has talked about melatonin over the years and how, you know, it's a negative process where if you have blue light in the day, it suppresses this little bit of, you know, uh, melatonin production that balances the whole body. It's really interesting that that's in the eye. It doesn't have to be there, right? But it is. And one of the, one of the justifications for that, I won't say reasons, but one of the justifications for that is that that governs the nutritional process by being related into the different, uh, uh, you know, endocrine pathways, right? So because that governs hormones and what is digestion? It's a hormonal act, right? Of breaking down foods. So, you know, when we talk about nutrition and light, again, it always comes back to that measuring light um, and the quality of the food and all. But it's also related not simply to the acquisition and the behavioral expression that we would you know, normally talk about, you know, that a, a tiger should be ripping its food apart, you know, in some ways. It actually goes to the hormones as well. So if a tiger, you know, when does a tiger eat, right? Does a tiger eat at midnight? And if that's so, why? And then you start to get into, or what does it mean? What, what are the consequences of that? So for a tiger to eat at midnight, it might be that that's the appropriate time in a hormonal cycle. Everyone falls asleep at Thanksgiving in the U.S. after, you know, the big turkey meal, right? So, and, and it always comes in that same, you know, afternoon kind of time. And, you know, there are, you know, Brat Savarin, we could read all sorts of culinary books talking about the timing of food. There's a seasonality, but there's the daily, you know, operations. There's a monthly operation, you know. Um, but all of those are really related to light. Uh, and what all of this comes down to is that within, I said there were two basic ways that light affects nutrition. One is that opportunistic way. How do I rend my food? You know, how do I acquire it? You know, both spotting it and, and processing it, right, with manipulation of my muscles and form of expression, right? Um, there's that side, but then there's also this opportunistic hormonal cycle 
that allows a, a living open organism to process the food and translate it into activities. So anyway, <laughs> that's two. I'm sorry, this will go on for days if I if you let me. Um, but uh, just because it's it's new, so it's always hashing these things out every time you know it's spoken. Um, when we talk about health, right, sort of the third domain of the five domains, if we talk about health, that opportunistic and homeostatic role, it, it actually it, it it changes what we mean about health or animal welfare. Sorry. You know, so even within the five domains, there's an idea that we have to provide, we have to give a positive experience to the animal, right? That gift giving is really part of, of how we think. Uh, it was part of the five freedoms. It's part of the five domains, giving something to the animal. But actually what we're giving, right, is an opportunity for the animal to be itself. That's the health, right? That's the health relationship. So, but that doesn't mean that we, you know, uh, just allow everything to go. It's not like this really poor Deridian kind of abstention from responsibility. It's actually more, we have to provide the opportunities to the animal according to its way of doing things, its, its structure and its behavior. So the idea of choice always came up. Um, Jill Mellon was really great on this years ago. I always loved listening to her. Uh, you know, Kristen Vares, you know, another amazing person and, you know, but they would talk about choice, you know, and choices. So, um, and, and I remember with, with Jill in particular, you know, she had a, you know, in laying out a, uh, a feline exhibit, you'd want at least seven spaces different within the same space. So you could have the same size space, but you needed seven different areas. Well, that's a question of health from the way we're approaching it here. So with light and health, the question is, how are the opportunities provided to the animal, not saying I'm giving them a positive experience. How am I allowing them to explore the conditions they're capable of? That's really important. So at midnight, humans don't see well at night, right? I mean, that's the way we always say it. Right? If I go out in the middle of the, I'm, I'm actually okay with it myself personally because I've been practicing for years. But like to go out on a star on a moonless night, right? It's really scary for a lot of people, right? To be able to walk down the beach without holding a flashlight in hand. You know, it's really scary for a lot of folks. The idea, though, is that a, a human animal, a non-human animal, we actually can occupy that. We've done it for you know twenty thousand years. You know, you know, being able to go out without artificial light, and you can experience what it is in that case. Um, there's a, a a river dolphin. I want to say a bato in um, a species in uh, that. As a cetacean scientist, you would know this. Uh, that is the only marine mammal, cetacean, without a crystalline lens on its eyes. And typically that's described in like Smithsonian books or, you know, whale books, whatnot, whatnot, as being a uh, poor vision in the animal. Nothing could be further from the truth, actually, from, from our perspective. You know, and this is one of those conversations you have like in the, late at night with a drink. But nothing could be further than the truth. The animal lives inside uh, muddy rivers. Right. Uh, so the bottle lives in, in, in a muddy river. Having that lens would prevent it from picking up the tiniest of directional signals in the light. Now, it can't image. It has no need to create a Pepsi ad. Right. It can't make that kind of image. But what it can do is respond very quickly to motion. And, and that happens with that particular structure. It's not as if the animal never developed a crystalline eye, right, a lens. Right. Because the animal, it, it, it's a cetacean. It evolved from oceanic animals going back up the river. But it doesn't have that eye. Right. It doesn't have that lens. It has an eye, but it doesn't have a lens. It's because the lens is getting in the way. Right. It doesn't allow it to see under that state of uh, a healthy, uh, under state of consciousness that creates a healthy opportunity for it to catch prey. See, so so that's uh, when we talk about health, we talk about this provision of opportunities and choice. Uh, and, and it's based on both the condition of the animal in terms of its hormonal cycling, uh, its exposure to different things, of course, um, you know, with disease and, you know, that are exacerbated by um, artificial light in the environment. Uh, but, but mainly it, it, it comes down to that provision of capacity. Uh, and then we have behavior, you know, behavior and envi environment's very quick. I can, you know, that, that one will be very quick. Um, behavior, though, here we're talking about uh, expression. You know, what is the behavior expressed? 
And normally the way I would talk about this would be to say, if I'm a psychoanalyst, you know, say I'm, well, let's say a good one, right? <laughs> let's say Freud, right? If Freud has sat someone on the couch, what is he watching or listening to? He's listening to the expressions of an individual, not as a question of tell me the truth, you know, to tell me the truth of why you're ill, right? It's more tell me what comes into your mind. Let me know how your mind is functioning. And then, but it's, it's a movement of a musculature. If you think of what it is to speak, when I speak, my lips move, my tongues move, my lungs go in and out. I push that air through across my larynx, right? And, uh, and, and my voice box, I mean. And, and, and the, the, the mouth articulates that into words. That's an expression. If I go back and I read Darwin, right, you know, on the expression of emotion in man and animals, he's looking at those same things. He's just not looking at the finer articulations of words that Freud pulls into this, you know, massive, you know, massively complex, you know, uh, theoretical framework. Um, but that being said, that idea of expression of something having been pressed into my nervous system, something that I manage as an open system that then comes out again. Now, when we look at behavior, right, what we're looking at, I think, uh, in, within the solometric too, what we're looking at in the behavior is the expression of the individual animal according to both its history and the species capacity uh, of its structure. We, um, and it's different from, say, looking at like a John Lilly approach uh, to communication, right? Communication, you want to touch mind to mind. Uh, and you know, that, I don't see that. You know, I mean, we, we, can, we can do that in religion. I'm, I'm happy to talk about souls in religion. But if we're talking about um, behavioral expression and a mental welfare, that idea of touching minds is very destructive. Uh, so it's one of the things that I, I don't think anybody's done more harm to animal welfare than John Lilly, actually, because it prevents, and uh, sorry for, for people who don't know who that is, it's Day of the Dolphin. You just go back and watch that movie. That tells you, you know, a lot about that or altered states. But um, and I know there are a lot of advocates and devotees for, for that particular mindset. But uh, but for my part, though, what that means is that the expression is not listened to. Right. So uh, the expression um, of, uh, of a particular animal is not listened to. So, and, and it's being replaced um, by, a, a, by a monologue, really. So, you know, with expression, you know, measuring behavior uh, is, is it's, it's very much a light-based thing. I mean, the only reason why Lily would know about or would argue that dolphins are intelligent, for example, is because of the visual studies that were done. He argues something silly like brain weight and, you know, in, in, in the books, but in his books. Um, but really, it's that study of visual acuity and task performance that leads to that understanding that dolphins are intelligent without really defining what intelligence is. So anyway, finally, when we talk about environment and uh, this, this will be the last one, when we talk about environment, we don't. Actually, we talk about environments in the plural, um, because we, by saying environment, we're not listening. Uh, and so within the Zolometric, there are, we always think of environment as environments, meaning that it's defined by the particular animal in question. So how its visual system works, you know, where are its eyes, what is its activity budget? that actually creates the environment around that animal. It's not an abstract, detached thing, uh, you know, to talk about uh, in the environment, right, as if there's just one. Um, when we're talking about light and perception and consciousness and the factors that lead to it, you really have to think of environments in the plural uh, and that they're layered uh, because ecosystems are layered. Uh, you know, in that way, both in terms of how they function over time, uh, how they function spatially with things like migration and whatnot, but also in terms of how are they actualized in, you know, the, the, the consciousness, right, to, you know, without being mystical, you know, in this at all, but just being physical, you know, how is that actualized in the experiment that is the animal? 
right? as another way to say that. So that's where we're at with Zala. Um, and, you know, overall, and forgive me for that, that was a long way around. It's just, you know, I know the way that we, we, we treat light and the five domains is different, say, from a five freedoms model, like, you know, feed my animal kind of a thing. Um, but that being said, it relates to a very specific program of listening uh, and building up a, um, an understanding of what welfare is uh, without compromise. So I hope that's okay, Sabrina. I, I do apologize if that's a bit long. Yes, no, 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 that is absolutely. And I think I was, it's interesting also immediately to then, you know, because you pull together a lot of different perspectives, um, you know, of course, differences of opinions and approaches. And, you know, really thinking about when you're saying we and the, this matrix, can you maybe spell out what the matrix, you know, exactly says and, and who you're collaborating with to pull? Because, of course, there's different expertise involved. Perhaps you can talk a little bit about how you're working through all this and together with who? Absolutely. Um, you know, there are, well, the, the two main people that I work with right now are Xavier Villanova, who is uh, at uh, uh, Zawek in, in Barcelona, uh, a vet, uh, you know, working through the five domains and sort of keeping me on my toes with that, you know, uh, in terms of animal welfare. Claudia Tay was a driving force uh, behind the Singapore uh, animal welfare monitoring protocols, uh, working with her uh, on this. Uh, and uh, you know, we're really behind the Zala metric. In terms of the physics, the board of uh, ZLI, uh, th there are so many good people involved, but I'll mention Dan Nielsen, uh, who is at Lund University, a wonderful gentleman, uh, runs a fantastic lab, and he's really a preeminent sensory ecologist. Uh, I would say the sensory ecologist. Uh, Sonke Johnson uh, is a biophysicist at Duke University, runs the Johnson lab. Uh, and so, like our, our checks, and and you know Mark Branham, down you know entomologist down in Florida, has been with us from the beginning, um, you know, and and I, I hate to leave anybody out, you know, with all of that, you know, in in, in commenting on who the we is and all of this, uh, you know, Brett of course and Avalon, you know, Brett Seymour and Avalon Owens, and you know, there's a a range of folks involved, uh, so there is a constant conversation about what we're doing, um, in terms of. Uh, uh, you know, pressing forward now with Zala, uh, with the Zala stations, um, this is actually very important to us. Uh, and this is really the we, when I say we, I really mean the, you know, ZLI, but then getting the Zala stations together. Um, with the Zala stations, we're looking to franchise animal welfare monitoring in zoos and aquariums to, to create a brand across uh, across the community globally. And the reason why we're doing that is to build support for those facilities by having independent monitoring where the, the, the information gathered, it's all internal, you know, to a zoo or aquarium. Um, but it's also, it has a separate public presence as well. So, and what that is, it's a form of risk management and a fundraising initiative so that uh, uh, you know, say for example, the London Zoo, right? Uh, if we're able to get a Zala station up, we're working on that. If we're able to get that, you know, proposed and accepted and up and running, the Zala station, an animal welfare station, it carries that monitoring as a way to improve decision making, and to bring that to the public in ways that animals, uh, uh, non-managed animals in the wild can also be monitored uh, and, you know, uh, and decisions improved upon. So that, that's really the, the, the goal there. But that we is this Zala uh, animal, uh, you know, station, this, this, this concept. Um, and uh, uh, internally, what that means is that, you know, there are, you know, equipment, so grant writing, you know, becomes easier because you provide the equipment necessary to monitor. I mentioned spectroradiometers before and, um, you know, cameras and, uh, but th there are, you know, tools that you would need just if you were going to measure water quality. You know, there are tools, and which these stations would do as well. They're, they're much broader than, the, the light is the focal point uh, because of the way that I was describing, you know, light in the five domains. 
Um, but uh, but it's much broader than that too, based in Claudia's writing of that uh, uh, the original Singapore WRS uh, protocol, which is excellent, I think. Um, but you know, uh, you know, uh, branching out into that monitoring and making sure that there is a uh, uh, a background of data when things go wrong to be able to go back and uh, figure out what what were contributing factors uh it's preventative healthcare you know that's another way to say it so the zala stations are preventative healthcare for zoos and aquariums and the idea of branding these across different facilities is to introduce an economy of scale uh, and and to make it financially lucrative for those facilities so uh, an example would be um let's say i don't know if starbucks is franchised <laughs> uh, you know, I can, unfortunately, the first thing that comes to mind so is these fast food restaurants, which, you know, it's not a great example in this context. Um, but we'll take a Starbucks. Uh, you know, Starbucks will sell uh, pampering, right? They sell coffee, but that's not really their product. They, they, they sell you the idea that you can be pampered. So if you go into a Starbucks and they give you a cup of coffee and you say, no, that's not the way I want it. The sugar is wrong. They'll make it again. And then they'll let you sit there for 12 hours right, in, in the shop. Uh, well, for the most part. Um, but the idea, though, is that they're selling that pampering, right? Pampering for productivity, right? So, you, you know, you, you get pampered, you'll be more productive. It's worth spending, you know, six pound for a cup of coffee as opposed to spending, you know, 20 pence, right? Which probably could cost, you know, with the cup. Or, or free, even in the office. People will go and buy a Starbucks rather than get the free coffee in their offices. Um, but the idea, though, is that you're being pampered and you're productive. Well, animal welfare is more valuable than pampering for productivity. You know, and, and I say that, you know, like I, I appreciate being pampered. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But animal welfare provision, understanding enough to want to provide animal welfare is a, is a commodity, right? As valuable as being pampered. It takes a while to appreciate that. Um, but the idea with these allestations is that the animal welfare, you know, is a way to be pampered for productivity going forward. Uh, but it depends upon monitoring. Uh, and so that protocol, too, I mean, uh, you know, Hamamatsu uh, will back us in this. So the equipment will come from them. Uh, it will come from Kyocera because there are times you need to add artificial light. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned that case of the giraffe earlier on. Um, you know, having no artificial light in the space uh, can be hugely problematic uh, because the, the condition is already altered. So you have to kind of figure ways to overcome that alteration. Uh, I can take an example with birds. Most birds' visual systems will be triggered by um, uh, ultraviolet light, UVA, right? Uh, most glass will filter UVA out, right? So if you're inside, it's effectively like putting sunglasses on birds where they are not able to uh, visualize that environment in the way they would naturally in their in their habitats. Uh, and that's problematic because it may be something like, you know, there may be patterns on conspecifics that are important for reproduction. There might be a sheen on fruit that allows a bird to, you know, distinguish between ripe and unripe you know, food, right? So, you know, with these Zala stations, the idea is to, you know, supplement where necessary uh, on site so that it's not a one-off process. Uh, I, you know, I mentioned also before, at the middle of the night, if a cleaning crew goes in and flicks on the light in an elephant barn, it's destroyed the melatonin cycling which uh, of those elephants, which means that you're going to have elevated levels of, which might... Uh, of, uh, I'm sorry, uh, altered hormone cycling, uh, which means that you might have elevated levels of things like diabetes or, um, or must might set on, you know. Uh, I mean, there are all sorts of things that can happen related to the hormones by altering them. The only way you would know that is by monitoring. So that, that's what the Sala Animal Monitoring Stations are. I'm, I'm sorry, that went off on a long tangent. I hope that's okay. Absolutely. Tangents are always welcome. And for sure, you know, there's so much here. And we're, of course, looking forward to hearing more about this, the stations, the monitoring. It's, of course, really 
great to hear, you know, the collaborations between your institute, zoos, aquariums, you know, universities, you know, together uh, for animal welfare. You've given some ideas, you know, there's much to think about with regards to sleep, of course, um, quality of sleep, quantity of sleep, um, of course, nutrition. You've given uh, quite a few examples. And you already mentioned very much at the beginning, like there is no perfect lighting. And, um, you know, there mm. still have some way to go. And in conclusion of this podcast, can you, if there's like one thing you would, you know, want to tell caregivers or zoos and aquariums in a practical sense, already you mentioned, you know, buying mm. some of the equipment, what is like the one nugget you would like to share with them at the end of this podcast? I would say focus on light, natural light. You know, natural light comes first. That's always the way to say natural light comes first. Something like zoo lighting, you know, at uh, like, uh, you know, the holiday lighting, you know, the holiday lighting services. It's a disservice, you know, to the industry because you're not paying attention when those go on. Unless there could be ways to do those events that celebrate natural light. Right. Yeah, so, uh, for example, um, if the lights go go dim at Disney, they used to do this back in the in the 80s, right? The lights in the whole park would get dim and then they would shoot off fireworks and they wouldn't have artificial light on when they shot those fireworks. They didn't have accidents, you know, later on, they changed their approach and there's lights everywhere, which I, I think is kind of a shame. But what I would say for a zoo director is really to pay attention to light uh, in terms of animal welfare, wildlife conservation, but because it actually impacts the mission of the facility. Uh, if a zoo or aquarium focus on light and natural light, it allows for so many opportunities to reach out to the community on wildlife, natural systems, education, you know, talk about physics. Um, you know, th there's so many different ways to do it. And it really just it goes back to that one phrase, you know, natural light comes first, uh, you know, in terms of like the cycles and all of that, but natural light comes first. Um, when something like lighting comes up, it's super important, but it really requires that monitoring uh, first. So the natural light comes first and to understand it, you really have to monitor light, you know, but that gives all, all sorts of economic productivity opportunities, you know, if, if a place is willing to explore them. Yes, and I like that because, you know, that sentence, uh, it's a very important sentence, but also it's, you know, natural light comes first, then thinking about, okay, you mentioned, you know, the structure of light, uh, the shape of light, the quality of light, you know, how light comes in. Uh, and so just that sentence, you know, to take that through into practice, what does that mean when we design? What does that mean for the back of house? What does that mean mm. for? And so that's a very valuable thing. Uh, and especially also a very kind of practical way to start thinking about this topic, which is, uh, as you have alluded to in this uh, very short podcast, that doesn't do the, the, the topic justice, you you know, how complex it is and, and how important it is on so many levels. And uh, so thank you so much, James, for coming onto the podcast and sharing oh. some examples uh, with regards to light and welfare and conservation and animals in cities and animals in human care. And uh, I'm really looking forward to having more conversations with you and others on the subject of light and lightning. Oh, it, me too. Thank you so much, Sabrina. I really appreciate it. It's, um, you know, we, we are, I, I say we, I mean, like I, I, I am all about this mission, you know, and um, because it is so rich and it is so underserved, you know, all of these, there's so many wonderful people out there working on amazing things, um, but they're scattered and, you know, the importance of that work hasn't been really appreciated yet. So, I'm hoping our films help with that, you know, I'm hoping all sorts of ways to go forward. But I want to thank you, though, too, because what you do with, um, you know, uh, with the group and the podcast here is just, you know, it's, it's wonderful and it's so necessary. So thank you. I, I really appreciate the chance. Absolutely. Yeah, no, lovely. I would love to hear more about the films that you've made, whether it's Fireflies and Beached and uh, some of the other, um, you know, 
but we'll have to do that in another podcast. We'll have to do another. Yeah, we'll have to do it yeah. another time. But the the beached film, the the beached film is actually uh, tracing. It's an anime. We changed the plan. It's an anime documentary now, uh, and it's tracing a Japanese dolphin keeper uh, from Japan through New Zealand, the States, and then back to Japan uh, as her life course, uh, as a way. It's called the Afterlife of Whales, which is a a way to think about science through the arts, uh, you know, to that approach, looking at the temple. So yeah, there's a lot to talk about, and obviously I'm really hopped up on that project, but. You know, yeah. we're, we're, we're in development, but we're, we're putting together a committee of marine mammal specialists uh, through ZLI as a, um, uh, an independent film advisory committee. So, and, and we're hoping to expand this out as one of the things the charity can offer uh, is to you know, advise on light and lighting in, in film, uh, you know, going forward. Um, but with, with, with that, any, any thoughts on who might be interested on a marine mammal oriented anime uh please send them my way <laughs> yes be, uh, yeah well, i'll send uh, myself your way and yeah uh, please do yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> no, oh, it's, it's open invitation open invitation so thanks and uh, of course anybody who's listening and who's interested you know feel free to uh, look at the um at the website that will be with this podcast and learn more about the charity, about the various, you know, department, photo sciences, educational, sustainable design, film and media, opportunities for grants that you can apply for. There's a lot there. And thank you again so much, James, for coming on to the podcast today. Thank you, Sabrina. I really appreciate it.